Heavenly Father, we know that even this morning, with the word that has been read and the songs that have been sung, that unless you, by your Holy Spirit, come and take your word and apply it to our hearts and minds, there will be no salvation and there will be no sanctification. We know that it is you who does this great work in us. And so we ask as a simple people that you would be gracious with us this morning and that you would, by your Holy Spirit, help us to hear, help us to open our mouths and proclaim the good news of Christ and help us to fervently pray for those who are unsaved. We ask, Lord, that your word would have its right impact upon us we would not leave here a people unchanged. We would not leave here a people who hear and do not do, but instead a people who hear and do mightily by your strength. We ask this, Lord, because we cannot do it on our own. Nor do we want to. We want to serve by your strength and your presence. So help us, Father, please. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Good morning. If you don't have your Bible open, please do so to Ezekiel chapter 37. We're going to venture back into the Valley of Dry Bones. And we must because we only made it four verses in. Last Sunday, verses 1 through 4, we looked at. We will look at verses 5 through 10, as Brandon said. And we ended up in Ezekiel because we started off the year looking at Joshua chapter 24 and this great call by the prophet to the people of Israel to serve the Lord. And we want this year at Cambrian Park to be a year where we find ourselves individually and collectively as a body serving the Lord. And so, by God's grace, I ended up in Ezekiel 37 because I, I, I want to look over these next few weeks, what does that look like practically and very simply I would love at the end of six, seven, or eight weeks for us to go, okay, I have, I have a few basic things now that I understand better now than I did December 2016. Things that God has told me to do in my service to Him. And so we, we started looking last week at those first four verses, and you know the story, Ezekiel, the prophet of God, is, is prophesying to those who are now in exile in Babylon and they haven't been there long. They're going to be there a little bit longer. And he brings this great prophecy uh, of hope to them. And they, he takes them out into this valley of dry bones and he commissions the prophet to prophesy his words, to speak truth to these very many, very dry bones. And of course, we saw last week, that's our commission as well. That's your commission to go out into this valley, into Silicon Valley, with the Word of God and with your mouth, proclaim Christ crucified to this place of very many, very dry bones. And we are to do that so they can hear the gospel as you've heard the gospel, and they can live just as you live. And this morning, I, I would like to continue looking at this vision. It is a most profound vision. I hope that even as Brandon was reading it, you were moved by the Word of God. It is one that should strike us, the weight and the magnitude of it, because it's not just dealing with Israel returning one day to the promised land, coming out of Babylon and out of exile. This is the grand redemptive plan of God. This is the great commission that goes out to his believer, to the church, to share the gospel with the lost and see redemption take place by his hand. And so this morning, I want to show you three things Three things that by God's grace will make us all better and more faithful servants. I want to show you God's necessary work, man's necessary work, and those are not in contradiction. God's necessary work, man's necessary work, and our prayer, our power-filled prayer, how God brings this all together. Let's look at the first point, God's necessary work. One of the first things that I hope you heard when Brandon was reading is the work of God what God must do, right? So he's commanding, he's giving this hope to the exiles, and Ezekiel goes out there because they're hopeless. They're no longer in their land. They no longer have a king. They're no longer a nation. They are a scattered people. 
In fact, they even say, look at verse 11 in chapter 37. They say, behold, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. They don't have a right relationship with the living God any longer. They spent so much time sinning and rebelling and bowing down to idols that God finally said enough's enough and he cast them out. And so the only way that there was any hope for the people of Israel to be brought back into the promised land and have a right relationship with God and we can go one step further, the only way there's any hope for any lost man, woman, or child to come back into a right relationship with God is if God does a mighty work. Look at verse 4. This is a work, my beloved, that we cannot do. This is a work we do not deserve to do. Verse 4, God said to Ezekiel, prophecy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus the Lord God said to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. Many things happening in that passage, but did you notice the emphatic subject of the passage? Who is it? It is God. What did he say? I will cause breath. I will lay sinews. I will cause flesh. I will cover with skin. I will put breath in you. God is saying, I'm going to do this great work. I had the reading this morning come from Ezekiel chapter 36 in verse 24. Again, God saying, I will take you from the nations out of the countries. I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new spirit. I will bring you to the land. I will be your God. You will be my people. This is God's work. This is God's great work. He is the focal point, and he is the subject of the necessary work that he promises to do. And if there's going to be any new life in any nation or any people, you or me or this church, it'll be because of God doing this great work. It is a work that we call regeneration. And you've heard us talk about the doctrine of regeneration before. That is, it, it is fundamental to our theology as a reformed body of believers. J.I. Packer put it like this. I like the definition that he gives. He said, regeneration is the spiritual change wrought in the heart of man by the Holy Spirit in which his inherently sinful nature is changed so that he can respond to God in faith and live in accordance with his will. He writes, it extends to the whole nature of man, altering his governing disposition, illuminating his mind, freeing his will, and renewing his nature. We call it being born again, where God recreates the inner man, because the inner man is dead. And so God comes along, and this is fundamental to our Reformed theology, God comes along and he makes a man who is dead now alive. He makes him alive. This, my beloved, is his doing. That's why we talk about being a monogistic church. A monogistic church, monergism, you probably heard the term, it means that God must do this great work, as opposed to a synergistic church, where they argue that man, God cooperates with man, and man must come in and let God do a work. God must, man must give God permission to make us alive. In other words, Man being made alive is dependent upon cooperating with God. And God cannot do it unless we are willing to cooperate. Now, from several passages of Scripture, many of which you know, and from this passage of Scripture, that's not what the Bible teaches, even though many churches do. We see from this passage that God must do what? He first must revive the man in order for the man to respond in faith and follow Christ. Must he not? We know this. We did this in John chapter 1, verse 13. The apostle said, We are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but what? But of God. If you're alive in Christ, my beloved, this morning, and you've made a profession of faith, and you think somehow in your mind you chose God, you need to reread the Bible. Because God says, I chose you. And then you followed me. I made you alive. And then you love my son. In fact, Jesus himself said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 3, that unless a man is born again, regenerated, he is unable to see the kingdom. You can't see it. 
You can't see Christ, you can't see the Word of God, you can't see your own depravity, and you can't see your need to be saved until God first makes you alive. That's because we're dead. In fact, we get that. The vision in in this passage that Ezekiel gets, it's that man is what? He's not just dead, he is completely dead, totally dead, bones without any life, any will, any spark, any breath, and he comes along and what does he do? He puts them all back together again, right? It's like Humpty Dumpty fell off the wall and God comes along and he puts all the pieces, sinews, flesh, skin, and breath to make man alive again. And God does all that work. The dry bones aren't lying on the ground going, saying, here we are, Lord, make us whole again. The dry bones don't cry out. They are very many and very dry because they are very, very dead. You say, why are you so emphatic about this? Because we still miss it today. The church proper in the United States, the evangelical church proper in our country misses this fundamental teaching. It is foundational to our faith. God does the work. God regenerates. And He must because we're dead. And that means, and listen closely, you have to be born again. That's why we talk about being born again Christians, although that's That's a confusing statement because if you're a Christian, you have been born again. And if you're not born again, then you're not a Christian no matter what you call yourself. It means that walking down the aisle at the end of a service does not mean you're saved. It means that filling out a visitor's card and saying that you said a prayer does not mean you're saved. It means that going to church or getting baptized does not mean you're saved. You are saved if God has come to you and made you alive. And then you may do all those things. But doing all those things does not save you. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, listen to what the Apostle Paul said to Titus. God saved us. We could just stop there, I guess. God saved us, not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Regenerated, born again, made alive by God. My beloved, we must remember that the unregenerate heart hates righteousness and loves unrighteousness. And therefore, as you go to the unsaved and they learn more about God and learn more about Christ, unless God makes them alive, they're going to hate Him more. Have you ever wondered why that's the case? You talk to people about God, you share the gospel, you share the word, and they hate Him more. And you're saying, I don't understand why this is happening. I hear people say, you know, we just, we just need, to, we need to show them Jesus. We need to show them the love of Jesus. Jesus showed people the love of Jesus, and they killed him for it. Did they not? It's not that simple. I mean, we must love, we must testify, and I want to show them the love of Christ. I do. But unless God opens a person's eyes to see their sin and see Christ, unless he gives them a new heart and a new spirit, they will hate him more. It's more than simply us changing people's manners or in getting them to engage in a religious act. It is the sovereign work of God. It is an irresistible work. It is a work that renews the whole man. And when it is done, it cannot be undone. Amen to that. That when God saves you, you cannot be unsaved. And when God does this great work, He gives, he gives you new affections and new desires. Things of, that will compel you to want to know God's word and to love his law, not hate it like we did when we were unsaved. It means that you'll hear that Jesus Christ is your king, that you'll hear that he is your master and it won't offend you. You won't rebel against it. You will rejoice over it because he's such a good king. He's such a gracious master, someone that you'll want to serve, someone that you'll want to know more and love more. These are the affections that God gives the person that he's made alive. Instead of running from God, you will run to Him. Instead of fighting against God, you'll say, I must have Him. You will fight for Him, and you will fight for your relationship with Him. And that means, my beloved, for you, if you've been born again, not your spouse, not your job, not your portfolio, not your income, not your lack of popularity, not your friends, nothing, not even the very gates of hell can keep you from Christ. That's the type of affection that God the Father gives the person he makes alive. That Christ becomes your all in all. And you must have him or you will die. 
Man is not forced to be with God, as some outside of the reform circles argue. Quite the contrary. God changes the man's heart, and you desire God more than anything else. And that's the great change. When we talk about being born again, that is the great change, isn't it? You have all these other desires, but now the greatest desire, the greatest longing of your heart, the greatest affection you have is Christ Jesus. And he did that for you. Christ becomes to you what? He becomes the pearl of great price. He becomes that treasure hidden in the field that you go and you find. He becomes to you the darling of heaven. He becomes your Lord and Savior. He becomes your everything. So the first point that we must get, God's necessary work is a work of regeneration. It is a work of making people alive. If he does not do that work, no one is saved. No one is saved apart from God making a man alive. Amen? All right, so what's your responsibility? I mean, if we just stop right there and he's made me alive, well, then I can just go. Right? I mean, as the food is ready, let's just eat some lunch now and let's go. Look at the second point, man's necessary work. This is not a contradiction, my beloved. The great question is this, and even more so in reform circles. If the work that is necessary for salvation, God does, and it's necessary that God does it, then what role do I have? If, if God must do the work, and it's not of man, and it's not of me, then we don't need to do anything. And of course, that's a great lie. Look at verse 4. He said to Ezekiel, prophecy over these bones. Verse 5, say to these bones. Maybe Ezekiel was thinking, what am I going to say to these bones, Lord? If, they, if they're going to be made alive, you're going to make them alive. So just do it without having me say anything. I mean, can I, can I just go home? I mean, we've been doing a lot of prophetic work. We're in verse chapter 37. He's been prophesying a lot. Can he just rest now? I've asked myself, if my neighbor's salvation is not contingent upon me, and it is not, then why, why share the gospel? If they're going to be saved, they're going to be saved. If they're not, they're not. So be it. Makes it much easier. I mean, sharing the gospel is hard. Talking about sin is hard. So I can just keep my mouth closed because God's going to save them. So why? Because the Bible calls us to. God has ordained his message of salvation to come from the lips of his people. This is the means by which God saves. He sends prophets. He sends disciples. He sends his church into the world to share the gospel with the lost so that he might make them alive. You sharing the gospel does not save someone, but God saves people through your sharing of the gospel. And that means that in order for dry bones to become alive here in San Jose, God must do the work and we must proclaim the gospel. Both are necessary, and those do not stand in contradiction to one another. Both, I would say, are absolutely necessary according to the Bible. Paul said, Romans chapter 10, verse 17, listen to this closely. Faith comes from hearing, that's our prophesying and someone hearing, and hearing, understanding, receiving by the word of Christ, God making them alive. And so they must hear and they must hear. There must be a double hearing. You speaking in them hearing and God changing them heart, their hearts and their hearing. Both are absolutely necessary in order for man to be made alive. If you've ever been in a situation where you've seen someone collapse... Paramedics arrive on scene, they assess the situation, the person is not responsive, they are not breathing, and there is no heartbeat. What horrible medical practice if they stood there and they said, come on, you can do it. Come on, get up. You've got the will, you've got the strength, come on, get up. What would you say to the EMTs or the paramedics? Get out of here. What does that person need? They're not breathing and there's no heartbeat. They are dead. A good paramedic will assess the situation. They will, they will make sure there is proper ventilation. Are they breathing? Is there access to the airway? They will likely start compressions right away, try to get some blood flowing again. They may even put a breathing tube down them, right? 
they will work upon this dead person in order to bring them back to life. This is what they're going to do. Without it, that person will remain dead. Now, if that person is going to live, God will take the means used by the paramedics to bring this person back to life physically. If they live, it's because of God, right? He is the giver and taker of life. It's the same for us spiritually, my beloved. In order for someone who is dead to be made alive, God must make them alive. And the means by which he does that is he sends out his paramedics from his church to exercise gospel compressions and gospel ventilations and a gospel breathing tube for the life of God to go into a dead person. That's us. And that's why we preach and teach and train to teach the gospel to others. You are those paramedics. You are those who go out and take that message. It is so honoring and it is so humbling at the same time. I mean, what an incredible honor that you go out into a world of dry bones and dead people and you have a word, as we looked at last week, that has the power to make them alive spiritually for eternity with God. It's incredible honor, incredible power. And yet you're simultaneously humbled, as humbled as you can be because you know that you can go preach and teach the word of God and the gospel to hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of people. And unless God comes and make them alive, they will remain dead. What a humbling position to be in. So much power and so much humility because God must do the work. And that is our position. Now the word of God and our own experiences testify to the necessity of God saving and our declaring. How often... Have you shared the gospel with a friend or a coworker or a family member one, two, ten times and they never receive Christ? There's no fruit born. How many times did someone share the gospel with you before you actually repented and believed and followed Jesus? How many times? If you were like me, a very dense, very sinful, rebellious man, it was tens, twenty, thirty, forty times. So why didn't it work? Because unless God breathes the spirit of life upon you or your friends or your family, the gospel will not make a man alive. The Holy Spirit with the gospel will. Look at verse 7. Verse 7. Ezekiel received his command. So this is Ezekiel. I prophesy as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. It's an amazing scene. I mean, these bones are scattered, and they start to rattle, and they start to come together, bone to bone, and then sinews, the tendons come upon them, and then flesh, the muscle comes upon them, and then the skin comes upon them, and you have people. All these people now. And now they look like people and not like skeletons out of a horror movie. But there's no movement. There's no life. There's no breath. Do you see the problem? I mean, he looked, Ezekiel, I praise God for his discerning eye. He looked upon the people and they looked like people, but he realized they were still dead. They were still dead because there was no life. Because in order for there to be life, God would have to breathe it into them. My beloved, we must be, we must be more discerning as a people. We must be. I think that in reflecting upon this, we fail at this. In Ezekiel's vision, there was no movement. The bones came together. I mean, there was movement. The bones came together and there was noise. There was rattling, but there was no life. So you had lots of commotion, lots of movement, lots of noise. People looking like people, but they were still dead. Movement and noise does not a saved man make. You ever wonder how it is that 84% of Americans still profess to be Christian? 84%. That number is staggering to me today, that people still make that profession. 84% of Americans profess to be Christian, and yet 56% of Americans believe that abortion should be legal, and 49% of Americans are in favor of gay marriage. How is that possible? How is it that millions of people will gather this Sunday morning in churches throughout the world 
and there'll be lots of movement and lots of noise. In some churches, there'll be speaking in tongues, there'll be a slaying of the Spirit, supposed healings will be taking place, and yet there is no spiritual life. How is that possible? How is it possible that millions, literally millions, will gather and hear a mass and they will take communion and they will submit to the religion of man and remain spiritually dead? And how is it, my beloved, let's get closer to home, how is it that millions of people will gather in biblically orthodox churches where the gospel is preached with reformed theology, knowing much about the Bible and still not know Jesus Christ? How is that possible? Because unless God makes a man alive, unless God comes into a church and by his Holy Spirit breathes life into us, we still remain dead. No breath, no spirit, no life, regardless of how much noise we make. And we can make lots of noise and we can dance in the aisles and we can speak in supposed tongues and we can do all these false healings. But unless God makes us alive, we are still dead. And that means, my beloved, that we must be, as a discerning people, looking for more than the external signs. We must be very careful on this. We must look for more than a sinner's prayer being said. We must look for more than a person filling out a commitment card or receiving a baptism and getting a certificate and hanging it upon their wall and saying, I'm a Christian. Someone says, how do you know you're a Christian? Look at my certificate. That's not going with them into heaven. Ezekiel saw that they were put together, but there was no animation. They were all put together, but there was no life, no inward transformation. Two essential things. Look at verse 6, that he did not see. God said, I will put breath in you, and what? You shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. No spiritual life and no spiritual knowledge apart from being born again. And every believer will have those two. When it says, you shall live, it means that you'll no longer be dead to your sins and transgressions. You'll no longer be a slave to unrighteousness. You'll become a slave to Christ. And when it says, you shall know that I am the Lord, it means that you will know God personally. You'll know Him intimately. You'll know Him, and you'll want to follow Him, and you'll long to be with Him, and there'll be a right, loving obedience that comes out of your heart and into your life, and that's what we want to see. We want to see it in our own lives. We want to see it in in those who profess Christ. And that means, now listen, listen, we're guilty of this. We need to stop. We must stop confirming a person's profession based upon an experience or based upon a prayer or based upon an event or based upon some religious activity. That brings them much harm. And I know that most of you don't do that to harm them, but you're harming them. If you falsely affirm someone's faith who doesn't really know Christ and there's no evidence and there's no fruit, you're only doing the work of the devil because that's his work. His work, my beloved, is to persuade millions to think they know Christ when they really don't. Millions. He's the master of it. I mean, you're doing a good work. You're a nice person. You're a moral person. Your friends like you. Of course you're saved. Lie. I mean, look at you. You're in church on Sunday morning. You could be in lots of places. Right? It's supposed to be a little sunny today. After all this rain, you could be somewhere else. But you're in church, and you are singing, and you're listening. You must know Christ. The lie goes on and on and on. If you affirm someone's faith without seeing biblical evidence, then you're only adding to their own destruction. The Western church, both Catholic and Protestant, we have perfected this deception for centuries with baptism, church attendance, communion, penance. It's why the physical church, I mean buildings here in the West, are filled with dry bones this morning. Very many, very dry bones in churches. So instead, by God's grace, using His Word, we need to come to one another. We need to come all your family, all your friends, all your neighbors who profess Christ, but you see no evidence. And I've heard you say that. Pray for, pray for my uncle. Well, does your uncle know the Lord? Well, he says he does, but I see no fruit. That's a discerning eye. We take the word of God, and we go to these people whom we love, and we see whether or not there's true repentance. 
You say, well, what does that look like? Is there a desire to know God through his word? Is there a desire to know the laws of God that they might live in obedience to it by the power of the Holy Spirit? Are they striving for obedience in Christ out of love? And when they fail, do they confess and turn and repent of their failures? Is there any love of any kind for the children of God? Is there any service to the children of God? Is there any desire for the lost to be saved and the gospel going out? When we sin, is there true confession and is there true turning from it? These are all things, my beloved, the church has understood for centuries and we have lost it today. The church fathers were very careful about affirming someone's profession of faith. They wanted evidence. They said, show us. We want to see it. We want to see it in your life. We want to see it in how you speak. We want to see it in your love for God through his word. We want to see it. And they weren't being over demanding. That's what the word of God calls us to as well. I think at times we should be ashamed at how quickly we say yes to someone's faith. I hear some people say, well, she goes to church. She was baptized. He's a nice person. He says he's a Christian. We must look for signs of true grace in a professor's life. True signs of true grace. If we love them. Ezekiel Hopkins, who was a Puritan, he said, I'll, I'll tell you one way that I look for it. He said, is there a hatred for sin? Is there a true hatred for sin? Listen to what he writes. It means that he, the person professing Christ, doth not sin in that malignant manner in which the children of the devil do. He doth not make a trade of sin, nor live in the constant and allowed practice of it. Of it. He hates it. That's a good indication. One of the many signs of grace that someone has truly been born again. We as a church must be very careful in identifying true and false converts, not only for the protection and purification of the body, lest we have wolves and leaven in the church, but also, my beloved, for them, for those in your life who profess Christ where there is no fruit, there is nothing, and I think I can make this statement, I don't believe there's anything worse you can do to a person than affirm their faith if it is not real. And I thought about that. Can I make that statement? And I think I can. Because if you affirm someone's faith who does not know Jesus Christ, you are sending them into the presence of a holy God without a Savior. And you're helping that. You're hastening that. I don't think there's anything worse we can do to falsely affirm Someone's faith who does not know Christ leaves them dead. Leaves them dead. And, and that's why I also believe that churches that refuse to exercise church discipline hate those people for whom they should be disciplined. It's so hurtful. Because what happens? You have a brother or sister who's in willful, unrepentant sin, and they stay in it week after week, year after year, and the church does nothing, and then they die. And they come before a holy God. And they say to Christ, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Did we not go to church? Was I not baptized? And Christ will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. That is the dialogue that we hasten when we say to people who do not know Christ, you know Christ. God's work is to make a man alive. Our work is to faithfully proclaim the gospel that someone might repent and believe and be saved. And if we are discerning people, we will look for true repentance. We will look for true faith. And if we do not see it out of our love for them, we will say, hey, I am concerned. You made, you made a profession of faith three years ago. I, I saw you before God and man profess your love for Christ. I saw you go down in the waters of baptism. And for the past three years, I've seen no fruit. I see no desire to be in community. I see no service of any kind. I see no love of God's word. I see you ensnared by the world. My beloved, those are, those are some of the most loving conversations you can have, and yet why don't we have them? Why are we so silent? God's work is to make a man alive. Man's work is to proclaim the gospel that he might be made alive. I want to show you one last one. 
you have another work, you have another weapon in its power-filled prayer. Did you notice in our passage that Ezekiel is commanded to two types of prophecy? Did you notice that? you got to look a little closely. In, in verse 4, look, God told Ezekiel, prophecy over the dry bones. And then in verse 7, Ezekiel prophesied as he was commanded. He faithfully declared the word of God to those who were in exile. He called them to hear, to repent, and believe. He gave them hope of becoming a people again by God's great work. And then he is called to engage in another type of prophecy. Now, this is so important. And if you hear one thing today, I want you to hear this. God is commanding Ezekiel to prophesy not to man, but to God. Did you hear that? God is calling Ezekiel to prophesy to God. Look at verse 9. So he had already been commanded to prophesy to the people. He's already prophesied to the people. The bones came together. The sinews came together. The flesh was there. The skin was there. But there was no life because there was no breath. Verse 9. Then God said to me, prophecy to the breath. Prophecy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. Verse 10, so I prophecy as he commanded me. This, is, this verse just should level you. This is an insane verse. God is commanding man to prophesy to God to do a work. It's an extraordinary verse, and I hope I never grow tired of it. God calling upon man to call upon God to do a work amongst the people. And you may be saying, how am I supposed to prophesy to God? What does that even look like? It's simple. It's prayer. And in this particular case, it's a specific type of prayer. It is a petitioning prayer. It is an intercessory prayer where you are going to God and asking God to do the very work that he has promised to do. This is his promise. He promised to come into the valley of dry bones and make dead people alive and make a people for himself. This is his promise. And so when you prophesy to God, when you pray to God, you're saying, God, fulfill your promise. Do the work you said you were going to do. You say, oh, that's too bold for a sinner like me to say to a holy God. No, God has commanded you to say that to him. Do you remember in Isaiah chapter 62, this is centuries earlier, in Isaiah chapter 62, God said to the prophet Isaiah, listen to this. This is from Isaiah 62, verses 6 and 7. I have posted watchmen on your walls, Jerusalem. This is God speaking. I have posted watchmen on your walls, Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest. In other words, what? Don't stop praying. Don't stop asking. Give yourself no rest for the lost. And then he says this. I love it. And give him, verse 7, and give him, referring to himself God, give God no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. We're supposed to wear out God. We're supposed to keep praying to God. We're not supposed to grow tired of it, and we're not to give God any rest until he does this great work. And here we have this image of the prophetic guardians of God's kingdom, faithful prayer warriors who will prophesy day and night to God about the promises of God to redeem a people. This is what he said he was going to do. And so we can say to God, God, do the work. You said you would do the work. Do the work. There are many in my mission field. There are many family members that I have. I say, God, do the work on them. There are so many here in San Jose that do not know Christ. We say, God, do that work. Fulfill that promise. Save your elect here. Make a nation for yourself. Glorify yourself. My beloved, I wanted you to see last week that you've been commissioned to proclaim and prophesy the word of God. This week, I want you to see you've been commissioned to proclaim and prophesy the word of God to God in prayer. Boldly. As a watchman upon that tower asking a very simple prayer. And here it is. You ask the Spirit of God to fulfill the will of the Father because that's what this prayer is. 
He's saying, say to the breath, say to the spirit, come from the four corners of the earth and make these people live. Holy Spirit, come and do the great work the Father promised to do, the great work that Christ did upon the cross. Do that work here in my backyard amongst all those that I know are dead. Breathe and do a work in our time. This, my beloved, please listen. This is where the battle's won. I want this to be as simple as it can be for us. It's one on our knees. The battle for our souls, for this church, for all those in your mission field that are very, many, very dry bones, for all the lost in San Jose, it will be one on our knees in painful, daily, intercessory prayer where we are prophesying to God And we're begging God to send his spirit. If we do not, we are being disobedient to God and we're saying we do not love the lost. You cannot say you love the lost and not prophesy to God to send the breath. Cannot say it. You are a liar. The Western church We've become so proud, haven't we? We're so assured of our own strength and our own book knowledge and our own theology and how we do church. And we have neglected the most powerful weapon that God has given us. The single resource that he says, you proclaim the gospel, you go out and you share the word, that's fantastic. You're commanded to do that, and by God's grace you will. And then tell me, call upon me relentlessly, daily, to make the dead bones alive. Where? Where are we? Where are the men and women who do this? Where are the men and women? who take the word of God to all the dry bones? And where are the men and women who will not give God any rest? Where are we? Because I don't think it's us. I don't. I don't. I don't think that we are like that as a people. The saints of old realized they were at war. They realized they were at war. They're just... There's just too many creature comforts. There's too much of our life that is striving for comfort and striving for ease, and we have forgotten. We're at war. John Piper had this quote. I got to read it to you. I was going to paraphrase it, but I'll mess it up. John Piper writes, Until you believe that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. I love that. It rhymes, so it helps me. Until you believe that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Now listen, he says, prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. But what have millions of Christians done? Don't write yourself out of this. They have stopped believing that we are in a war. No urgency, no watching, no vigilance, no strategic planning, no prayer. Just easy peacetime and prosperity. And what did they do with the walkie-talkie? Here's the prophecy to God. What did they do with the walkie-talkie? They tried to rig it up as an intercom in their cushy houses and cabins and boats and cars not to call in firepower for conflict with with a mortal enemy, but to ask the maid to bring another pillow to the den. Man. Ezekiel looked out and he saw there was no life and therefore he called upon God to bring life. He used his walkie-talkie. He, he picked it up and he prophesied to God and he asked God to come from the four winds, four corners of the earth to make these people alive. Most of you probably heard this 
and it's probably worth repeating multiple times because it's such an extraordinary thing. Charles Spurgeon preached for 38 years at the Metropolitan Tabernacle Church in London. And I am told and I've read that during his sermons in the basement, and you've heard this, he had four to 500 people praying when he preached. And he'd say, that's my furnace. That's the fuel for the fire. So what did he say? I will proclaim the word and they will prophesy to God. I will preach and they will pray and God will move. Supposedly, he did not walk up on the altar to preach without saying to himself, I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit because he knew as eloquent as that man was, he knew his words would fall upon deaf ears unless the Spirit of God moved. Many of you have shared the gospel with a friend or family member and they have not repented and believed. Let me ask you, have you prayed for them? I mean really prayed for them. Have you shared the gospel, which you must do, and then have you day and night without resting gone before God and not given God any rest? Have you begged God for their souls? When God, when his word goes out, and his children pray. He moves. He always has. He has for centuries. So when we look around and we say, why not here, Lord? Instead of blaming God, we might ask ourselves, are we being faithful? Are we proclaiming the gospel? Are we praying for those to whom we pro proclaim the gospel too? Are we giving God no rest? These are the weapons that we have been given. These are the primary weapons that we have been given. Prophesying to man and prophesying to God. Preaching the word and prayer. And this battle and this enemy are too big and too powerful for us to use any other means. This enemy and this Darkness is so powerful, it required the Son of Man to come to earth and live a perfect life and then die as a sinner on a cross, taking the sins that we rightly deserved. It required him to rise from the dead. And so if we think that we can somehow manipulate people and coerce them into a public confession or get them into the baptismal pool or play a little religious trick on them and think we can save them, when Christ had to die to save us, then we are fools. I want to close with verse 10, and I will close. What happens when we listen to God and we humble ourselves? Look at verse 10. What happens when we faithfully declare the word of God and pray, really pray? So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. This picture is extraordinary. Ezekiel, by God's command, proclaimed the gospel. And Ezekiel, by God's command, prayed to God for the Spirit to move. And there's an army here, and they're standing, ready to serve the Lord. And this certainly is the people being brought back into the promised land under Ezra and Nehemiah, certainly. But it's also you. It's me. It's all those that God has breathed life into and made us stand and brought us into this <coughs> exceedingly great army to serve him, to stand in faith upon the work of Christ upon the cross. Christ remained upon that cross that we might have life so that we can actually fight. We can fight against sin and we can fight against Satan and we can fight against the world and we can fight against our own flesh in the power of his spirit, in the power of his resurrection because you have been born again if you know Christ. 
And therefore we can live not as our old selves, but as new creatures, filled with the Spirit, knowing God and wanting to know Him more, enjoying the love that God has for us, rejoicing in that love daily, rejoicing in that security, and serving one another, and by God's grace, proclaiming the gospel and praying for the lost. My beloved, you are part of this army if you're in Christ. And don't for a minute look around here and say, this is it. This small little gathering, this isn't it. We're a special ops group. I mean, we've been assigned to hostile territory, right? There's a reason we're like this. But you are part of a much bigger picture. You're part of the universal church. You're part of the heavenly hosts that are battling for God that will win. There is much strength in God's church today, no matter how it looks. So much strength. You're part of that. We have been stationed in a valley with very many, very dry bones. That is unquestionable. But we are stationed here for the distinct purpose of glorifying God and making His name known through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. That's why we were planted in 1952. That's why we're here today. There's only one real question for us at this moment, and that is, are we going to stand like the army that we are? Are we going to live like the army that we are? Are you going to prophesy to the lost or are you going to prophesy to God? Are you going to proclaim the gospel and pray with all the might the Holy Spirit gives you? Or are we going to use our walkie-talkies to ask the maid to bring a pillow for the dead? I pray not the latter. I pray by God's grace, 2017, we will see ourselves serving God by proclaiming the gospel and praying for the lost and really doing it. Not talking about doing it or doing it haphazardly, but being faithful to that end. Prophesy to God. Prophesy to people. And let us hold each other accountable. Let's pray that God would do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know the degree to which we have been faithful to this great commission. You know the degree to which we have been unfaithful. I ask, Lord, that you would forgive us for being so quiet. Forgive us as a people amidst so many dry bones, not telling them of Christ, not telling them the way of life. Forgive us, Father. Forgive us as well for not being a people whose knees are calloused, whose nights are long, whose spirits are not troubled because our time is not spent prophesying to you, begging you, asking you, giving ourselves no rest and giving you no rest to breathe, to bring life. It's not supposed to be like this, Father. This valley is not supposed to be so dead. Change that. Please, change it for us. If we're not praying, compel us to pray. If we're praying, compel us to pray more. There will be no life without breath. And only you can bring it. Let us call upon you to do that. We don't want to live in a dark place without the hope of the gospel. So we hold on to Christ with all our might. And we hold upon your promises, Lord, with all our might. I'm so thankful that you redeemed us, a people so unworthy of redemption, and set our feet in this army to do this mighty work. I ask, Lord, that you be glorified in it. In Christ's name, amen.